0: We have the potential to become fully awakened Buddhas. We clearly have a store of good karma because we were able to have a precious human life. And in this life, too, we're creating virtue and dedicating it for good rebirth and liberation and enlightenment. So it's important always to have a balanced mind. We think of the faults of samsara, but we think of the potential we have and the possibility of liberation and awakening. So if we can keep our mind in a balanced way like this, then we can maintain a good practice. If we think too much of the dukkha and samsara, not, it's no, it's not if we think too much of it. If we think about it in the wrong way, then we get full of despair and discouragement and depression. But if we think about it correctly, as the Buddha meant us to think about it, and we see there's a way out of it, then that energizes our mind to act. And in acting it's very important to accept ourselves and what we're capable of doing, and to know that in the future we'll be capable of doing more. But now we are where we're at, and so let's appreciate it. But it's also good to expand our mind and think of what it would be like to be a bodhisattva, to see any sentient being. And the first thought that comes in our mind is the aspiration for full awakening to be able to really benefit that sentient being. And to imagine what would it be like whenever somebody asked us to do something, to have a mind that said, yes, I'm happy to help. So when we imagine having minds that respond to situations like that, it uh, expands our possibilities and let us lets us practice having a different attitude. So now let's imagine what it would be like to have the bodhicitta and to be invigorated by that and optimistic because of that. So it's interesting, when we think of bodhicitta and the higher steps on the path, so often our first thought is, it's too hard. I can't do it. I'm going to fail. Those are things for really advanced practitioners, not for me. And so we don't even bother imagining being like that. But imagining being like that, it's, we don't have to build a tower like Milarepa did, yeah. We don't have to unplug drains and, you know, or chop down trees or or who knows what. We just need to change our mind. And yet, sometimes, changing our mind to a different attitude is harder than doing any kind of physical labor. Isn't that amazing? Even on the level of just pretending, yeah? Just pretend you have that attitude. Just pretend that you feel that way. Yeah? It's like we don't even need to move from our seat, and yet it's like, oh, I can't do it. imagine being generous like a bodhisattva. No. Yeah. Well, you know, instead of going to, no, I can't do it, to remember the story of the lady who couldn't do it, and so the Buddha had her practice handing a carrot from one hand to the other hand. And she practiced generosity like that, until, at one time, she put it in somebody else's hand. And then she went on from there. Yeah. So we should let ourselves imagine being the kind of people we want to be. And having the kind of qualities we want to develop. It's just like when we were little kids playing dress-up. You put on your mom's and dad's clothes and you pretend being this and that. And that's how you grow up into an adult. You know, because you played at being one at one time. (laughs) Okay. So, I'm going to visualize myself knowing the answer to these questions that people sent me. But I don't know that I know the answer, so I will do my best. And we can all continue to learn. Okay, so one person wrote in, What is the reasoning that proves that our virtuous and non-virtuous actions result in taking a rebirth, result in the experiences we have in future rebirths, result at habitual actions, result uh, at living in a certain environment. What's the reasoning that proves that? Okay, so these kind of questions that are about karma, yeah? Remember we talked about the evident phenomena, the slightly hidden and the extremely hidden? This kind of thing is extremely hidden. So the kind of reasoning we use for it is the uh, reasoning of authority, scriptural authority. And so we read the scriptures, and if the scriptures are not contradictory from beginning to end, yeah. if the other passages that they say uh, in them are correct, if they teach the basic Buddhist philosophy, then we can rely on those scriptures. So it's not a hundred percent inference. It's called inference by scriptural authority. But to me it doesn't strike me as being a hundred percent by reasoning, you know. There are these elements of trust, but there are criteria for trusting different scriptures, too. It's not just blind faith. But I know what uh, helps me to understand these things is that it just kind of makes sense, you know. If I act like an animal, it makes sense that I would be born as an animal, you know? It just kind of makes sense. I can't give you the logical reasoning, except that it's, you know, kind of the result is similar to the cause. You act like an animal, you're born like an animal, okay? You uh, act in a particular way. To somebody, you lie to people, then people aren't going to believe your word. Or you lie to people, and they're going to lie lie back to you. Yeah, and you you know have disharmony, speaking in a divisive way, then you create a habit to keep doing it. Yeah, if you think in a generous way, you create a habit to do that. If you act with generosity, really caring about others, it makes sense that in the future you would receive wealth and that you would be born in a place that is prosperous. Whereas if you're miserly, it kind of makes sense that you would be born in a place where, you know, you have droughts and so on. Not that you would be born in that place, but you would wind up living in a place like that. Okay, So for me, just kind of the the obvious similarities between certain virtuous and non-virtuous actions and the three or four results they bring, you know, there's some connection there. Okay, so that helps me understand that uh, Yeah? And it's basically, our causes bring results. Now, if you don't think that the results have any similarity to the cause, that they're totally discordant, that you can uh, act on virtuously, and there's absolutely no result to it, you know, in this life or in future lives, Or maybe you think there might be a result in this life, but no result in future lives. Then you're really kind of heading down a nihilistic path. And if you don't believe that our our non-virtue brings painful results, and that our virtue brings uh, feelings of happiness and contentment, then propose another way they ripen yeah if you don't want to say oh well the karma doesn't ripen at all and be a nihilist then produ- you know propose another way that they could ripen that would make sense yeah and give some kind of reasoning that isn't scriptural uh, authority to defend your position yeah so uh you know, His Holiness, when he, he talks to scientists, he'll say that they disagree with certain things. And they may say, we don't believe in rebirth, but they can't give a reasoning to disprove the existence of rebirth. Yeah? So if we're uh, saying that uh, something the Buddha says doesn't make sense, we should see if we can come up with a proposition that does make sense. yeah. And then see if we can find some holy beings who agreed with our proposition. Here's one of our friends in Singapore who's been really thinking about emptiness. Very good, you know, really yeah, putting it into practice. So she asks, Am I correct to say that the four-point analysis for meditating on emptiness is essentially using dependent arising to find there is the absence of a solid independent I? The examples in your book are based on the uh, I being designated independence on the parts or the aggregates and, you know, how it is merely designated by mind. Okay, So those, um, the four-point analysis is more a dis- dissection, why things cannot inherently exist. It does relate to dependence, for example, on parts, for example, the aggregates. Because when, uh, after you identify the object to be negated, and you realize that you think that there's only two possibilities, if the I exists inherently, it either has to be one with the aggregates or separate from the aggregates. You know, there you are analyzing the I in relation to the aggregates. You're finding it can't be inherently the same as the aggregates. It can't be inherently different from the aggregates. Okay. But the I does exist in relation to the aggregates. How does it exist? By being dependently designated independence on the aggregates, okay? But when you're actually doing the four points, you're more seeing, you know, that, well, you are analyzing it in terms of the aggregates. You're seeing it can't be the same as the aggregates. It can't be different. So it is an analysis of the parts. Yeah? Yeah. And it is an analysis also of uh, the whole basis of designation, because we uh, analyze how the eye can't be the same as any particular part, any particular aggregate or part of the aggregate. And it also isn't the same as the collection of the aggregates. Yeah. So it is merely designated upon the collection of the aggregates, okay? So they go together. Okay. So if I'm right on that, why is dependent on causes and conditions not in the analysis? Because the four-point four analysis isn't taking in all of the reasoning of dependent arising. Dependent arising is actually usually called a separate reason from the four point analysis. Okay, when they, when you look at the four point analysis, you are usually looking at like Nagarjuna's versus in, um, in the Karikas, and also um, chapter 18, I think, in the Karikas, and also in um, in Precious Garland, because there you're saying, uh, you know, is the I the same as the aggregates? Is it different from the aggregates? Does it possess the aggregates? Does it depend on the aggregates? Do the aggregates depend on it? Okay, so it's not specifically bringing in causes and effect. However, you can certainly analyze the I in terms of cause and effect. And I find it very uh, helpful to think, you know, to ask myself, do I feel like I exist because the causes for me exist? Okay, so this is an analysis of cause and effect. Do I feel like I am the effect of causes? Yeah? Do you feel like you're the effect of causes? No, most of us don't. When we think I, it feels like there's just I. And it's there, self-powered, We never think of what caused the I, most of us. Yeah, it's just we take the existence of the I for granted. And the way we think of the I is that it is always there, which means it's independent of causes and conditions. Because it's always there. And it's independent of everything, yeah. So I find it very uh, humbling. And it creates a, a certain awareness of emptiness to think, you know, I exist only because the causes for me exist. Otherwise, I would not exist. And then I think, well, what about if the causes for me existed, but they were different causes? Would it still be I that exists? Or would it be a different person that exists? If the causes for me existed and became I, yeah, Would that I be the same I, I am now? Well, no, it might be a totally different personality. But on the other hand, it couldn't be totally different because that other I would still be a continuation of whatever previous life I had. It would still be in the same Continuation, same mental continuum, yeah, and then you go, but, 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 I thought I had a, a permanent personality that was always there, and it was exactly like this, and this is the way I am, and there's no way I could ever be any different. That's how we feel, you know, like I can never be different than the way I am. That's why we can't even imagine being a Buddha. Because how we think of ourselves right now, we can't imagine. Thinking differently, being a different person. And yet, when we think about causes and conditions, it's quite obvious that if we depend on causes and conditions. if there were different causes and conditions than the one that produced who I am right now. Yeah, I would be a very different person. Then who am I? Which personality am I? Isn't there some core, something that I can rely on that is my character, my personality, the essence of me, that's always going to be like that, even though superficially, I change? Yeah, that thought comes in the mind. In other words, can I be permanent and impermanent at the same time? What do you think about that one? Is that one going to work? Uh-uh. But that's the way we see ourselves sometimes. And then we begin to realize, boy, the whole way I conceive of myself is really off. It's really, yeah, it's off. When the Buddha said that we sentient beings were ignorant, he was talking about me. And he's right. I am ignorant. I have all these ideas about how I exist and who I am. And the moment I just examine them for a minute or two, I realize that they're all nuts. Yeah? They're all crazy ideas. When you just, I mean, Simple things. Can I be permanent and impermanent at the same time? Can I change from being permanent to impermanent and go back and forth and back and forth? I mean, is there any possible way? No, you think about it for, you know, 30 seconds, one minute, it's totally impossible. Yeah? If I had different causes, would I be exactly the same person I am now? No. Then who am I if I'm not this person? Because I feel like there's somebody that I am. Well, then what is it? Point to it. I can't. But I know it's there. It's ineffable. That sounds good big word, nobody understands. And they talk about emptiness being ineffable. So my thing is ineffable too. You know, who I am is ineffable, undescribable, inconceivable. That's right, you're a dummy and you can't give it, have even a correct conception of how you really <laughs> exist. Yeah. Have you ever had that experience when you're doing retreat, after a session, to just say, boy, the Buddha really knew what he was talking about when he said that I was ignorant. Wow, that's really true. And that feeling lasts for 15 minutes, and then we're back to... I am whatever our conception of ourself feels like it is. And we defend that conception of ourself. I am a this, I am a that, and do not treat me as a stereotype of this and that. You should treat me the way I think all the categories I belong to should be treated. And you should know that already, without me saying anything. Okay, so she's saying also, is it flexible to use other examples on that? on the four-point analysis. Yeah. So, you know, examine by cause and effect. Examine by parts. Really think if I I am in the, uh, somehow, you know, related to the aggregates, or I am really something, then find it. Is it this aggregate? Is it the uh, that aggregate? Is it my? Am I my body? You know that one is not too hard to figure out. We're not our body, except when we're in pain, and then we are our body. <laughs> so again, we go back and forth between this is my body and I am my body. Yeah. Can you be both the the possessor and the thing that's possessed at the same time? No. But can you go back and forth between being the, those two? No. But somehow, I think I can. Okay? Yeah, so... Then she asks, okay, about applying emptiness when she's thinking about karma. So she says, I visualize in front of me somebody I dislike. So Joe, we'll call a person Joe. I describe Joe as disgusting, untrustworthy, and so forth, okay? So then she comes to the conclusion, meeting Joe, and my experience of Joe, is the karma I have created in my past life. Not exactly. The karma we create, karma is an action. So meeting that person isn't an action you did from a previous life. It also isn't the ripening of the seed of that action. Okay? Now, karma may influence how Joe appears to us. Yeah, there may be some karmic influence there. in you know, whether Joe appears beautiful and attractive, or Joe appears untrustworthy or whatever. But often, it's not so much the karma as it is our present mental state. That we look at Joe and we come to conclusions about Joe. Yeah. The conclusions may be based on nothing, except just looking at the person. Or they may be based on a brief interaction we had with the person or they may be based on a long-term relationship with the person. Okay, but whether you like somebody or you don't like somebody, a lot of that has to do with the state of your present mind and with the present situation you, you are in. Because you may start out, maybe Joe looks like somebody who was mean to you when you were five years old. So you associate Joe, the adult, with the five-year-old bully on the playground. And this feeling of dislike for Joe comes. Okay, that's not due to your karma. Okay, that's due to conceptualization in the mind. Yeah, and confusing one person with another person and jumping to a conclusion. But it's interesting to see that if we meet Joe in a very different situation, he may appear to us to be very kind, very attractive, and we want to get to know them. Have you ever noticed that some people, when we first meet them, We don't have a good impression for them. But when we find out that there's somebody important, then we have a much better impression of them. At least if they're important in the kind of causes that I like. So if this is an important person in in acting to stop climate change, then I think, you know, I used to think, eh, who are they? They're nobody. But they're important in, in acting against climate change. Wow, they look really good now. But then if I find out that they work for an oil company, then I go, oh, horrible person. I haven't talked to that person. <laughs> I just find out what their reputation is. And my mind changes about whether I like them or don't like them. Okay, so this is due to our, our mental factor of uh, inappropriate attention or distorted conceptions. Yeah. And then we just take the ball and run with one conceptualization after another one, after another one. Okay. So she says, there's no one to blame, neither should I feel victimized. That is correct, however the situation is. Yeah. Even if Joe, uh, you know, Joe turns out to be the adult who was once that kid on the playground who beat you up. Why blame the present day Joe? It's not the same person. and did the 5-year-old joe who beat you up did he really understand what he was doing or was he you know having a really hard time at home and then taking it out on the playground okay so in any case why why is there somebody to blame similarly why should i feel victimized yeah if somebody is attacking me it that is you know has to do with karma if somebody attacks me i did an aggressive injurious act to somebody else in a previous life and that pain is now coming back to me okay so it has a karmic cause but it's not only due to karma it's also due to the present cooperative conditions, yeah, because again, you know, if I met Joe in a totally different environment under different circumstances, yeah, we would have a very, very different relationship. Don't you think? Can you think about instances in your mind where you've met people and had formed, you know, instant likes or dislikes? and then later met them in a different situation and you wound up having a very different relationship with them. Yeah? And can you see how our way of thinking about somebody completely, you know, it so uh, changes the way we feel about somebody. Of course, it has to do with their action Okay, so if, if somebody says to me, uh, uh, you know, children, you forgot to do this or that. Okay, they just say, you know, you know, you forgot to do this or that, and I was really waiting for, for it to be done, or I was counting on you or something like that. Okay, then maybe they first say that, and I think, well, yeah, that's true. I did say I would do it, and I forgot. But then I think about it some more. So that person said that to me. Now, they're out of the picture, okay? They're off and never, never left. But first, first thought is, yeah, I did make a mistake. Then I think about it some more. Actually, you know, I don't know if they really were explicit to me that Uh, They wanted me to do that, and now they're calling me out for not doing it, but I don't actually have a clear memory of them telling me to do that. So why are they calling me out? Dislike comes, doesn't it? Okay, then? Still, you haven't seen the person anymore. There's no more factual evidence. Then you start thinking, you know, I've had so many incidences with that person where they've criticized me for not doing something. And it couldn't be that I always am negligent and I always forget. I think this person has it out for me. That's what's behind this constant pattern of them saying the same thing to me. Yeah, they have it out for me. More anger, more resentment. Maybe some vengeance arises in the mind. Okay? What's the cause of the whole change in our mood? and the whole change of our perspective of how we see that person. Is it the person's actions? No, they're gone. What's causing that change? My conceptual mind. Yeah? My mind that likes to make me the victim of mean people because then I have no responsibility, and it's all their fault. Okay? So, uh, you know, this way of thinking what she's doing is very good to look and analyze situations like this from multiple perspectives and really see what are the causes of different things, yeah. Okay, then he said, "If I think of the the air that Joe breathes and the air that I breathe, it's basically the same air. And you know, especially if we're in the same room, we could be breathing the same air. So." How really are Joe and I so different? If we're getting nourished by the same air. And you know, if we eat lunch together, we're eating the same food. They just happen to put that part of that piece of broccoli on their plate, but I put another piece on my plate. But we're getting nourished by the same food. Okay. Yeah. And then she comes to the conclusion, all the negative descriptions of the current Joe as being disgusting, untrustworthy, and so forth, are merely posited by my mind due to my mental afflictions. Yes. So based on in, inappropriate attention or distorted conceptions, then we Uh, the mental afflictions join, you know, uh, rise up. And she said, uh, but but not so long, I don't know, the last sentence I don't understand, but it has something to do with, I can also see the Buddha as having, uh, I also can see Joe as having the Buddha potential. Yeah. The sentence reads, no, Uh, So long ago, I see Joe with Buddha qualities. So I'm not sure. Not so long ago, I saw Joe with Buddha qualities. Oh, yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. And then our mind goes off. We're in a bad mood. So then we interpret everything in a negative way. amazing how all those people show up on the day when we're in a bad mood, you know? Isn't that amazing? Haven't you wondered why that always happens? Yeah? They always show up that day. And they always ask me to do something when I'm in a hurry. And they always ask me to do something physically demanding when I don't feel well. Amazing how these things always happen at the, you know on those days, isn't it? Yeah, huh? coincidences. Okay, I better get back to this text. So this text is talking about karma, yeah, you know? and we are on idle talk. So. You know, I read a lot about Netflix, but I don't know what Netflix really does. (laughs) Can somebody tell me what Netflix is? You get movies on it, but what kind of movies? Can you get documentaries? Do you have to pay for it? Oh, you have to pay. Oh, that, I don't want to do that. What else? Who started Netflix? Is this a business? Yeah? Oh, it's a business. Okay, who started it? Oh, okay. Hmm. Well, anyway, uh yeah, there's Netflix, then what else? If you can't get a movie on Netflix, how else can you get it? Yeah. We can talk a long time about that, huh? Yeah. And I know something's going on with TikTok. <laughs> yeah? I always thought clocks went TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. Then I was reading something like people dance while they say TikTok, TikTok. Who dances when they say TikTok? And now somebody wants to buy TikTok. But isn't TikTok like Happy Birthday? I mean is Happy Birthday still public domain song? Or you have to pay somebody to get it? What about is TikTok? Yeah, is that public domain? Didn't you used to say TikTok a lot when you were little? Okay, so idle talk. <laughs> yeah. So the basis of an idle talk—we're going through the four uh, parts that make it a complete action. The basis is a topic without meaning or importance. How do you spell TikTok anyway? <laughs> Is it T-I-C or T-I-K? You know This is very important. Yeah. I might dream about TikTok tonight. to <laughs> Make sure I spell it right. Okay, so a topic without meaning or importance. Attitude, three, point, three points to the attitude. So first is knowing the topic we wish to speak, speak about. Okay, so I can talk about TikTok or Netflix or the latest thing on Infowars or the latest thing that came out of the. I'm practicing good speech. Uh, Okay, so knowing the topic we wish to talk about. Yeah, and then second point. Any of the three poisons. So with attachment, we idle talk, flattering somebody, hinting to get somebody, something. Yeah, anybody here do that? Flattery, hinting. Yeah. Coercion, putting somebody in in the situation where they can't say no. Okay, it's idle talk. Uh, So that's done with attachment. We want something from the other person. Anger is angrily wanting to disturb someone. Okay, you're mad at somebody. They're focusing on something. You stomp into the room and you start talking about Megan and Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, uh, ignorance is ignorantly wanting to pass the time. So I'm bored. You know, let's just go hang out and chit chat. Okay, so the, that's the second one, attitude. Action. Here, here are examples of the action of idle talk. Gossiping. Okay. Yeah. So you know our neighbor down the road? Do you know that they have a peacock that bites you? You know that good. I'm glad. Once that peacock followed me and it jumped on my back a few times. You know, before it just nipped at my robes, but it jumped on my back. I wonder if that's something that peacocks do because of their genes? Or is that learned behavior? I wonder, what do you think? What do mama peacocks teach baby peacocks? Okay, gossiping. Telling stories. Did you hear the latest about... You name it. Okay, joking without a good purpose. So there can be joking with a good purpose. But joking without a good purpose, you know, to make yourself the center of attention, to appear witty, yeah, that's idle talk. Joking with the motivation to insult somebody, that's harsh speech. Praying for terrible things to happen. That's gossip. That's uh, idle talk. Wailing. Oh, shucks. Why did they put that one in? Wailing. Ah, ah, ah. Ah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, people wail, don't they? People wail. Okay, teaching the Dharma to someone lacking interest or respect, that is idle talk, yeah? We should not explain the Dharma to somebody who has no interest and who is disrespectful. Yeah, Because it just goes in one ear and out the other, and uh, they become unhappier and more critical. Reciting liturgies of other religions for no good reason. Okay. If you're at an interfaith dialogue, you know, you can recite something. Uh, I don't recite things. I mean, there are passages from liturgy and other religions that I agree with. And if I'm at an interfaith dialogue, I will recite those passages because the values and the meaning are the same as the values and meaning that, that I hold and respect. If the passages are stating something that I don't believe is correct, then I, I don't recite it. Okay. Um, yeah, but sometimes we're in situations where, you know, it kind of brings harmony to join uh, to join in what other people are doing. Repeating jingles and slogans. Whenever I hear this, I remember when one nun came to participate in EML and she had done a three-year retreat, and she we asked her to talk about it during one session. And she was saying, everything that you learned as a kid, you know, all sorts of absurd things keep coming up in your mind. And then she started singing, the ants go marching two by two. What's the rest of it? Ants go marching two by two, hurrah. hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. I don't know, what, what happens, what's the next slide? So, so, you know, you get in, in, into that, yeah. I, uh, you know, so I always, whenever I think about jingles, I think about her saying that one, okay. Um, slogans. <coughs> I won't give any examples. <laughs> yeah. Make America better, make America peaceful. Make America safe, make America healthy. Make America kind. Okay, more idle talk, grumbling. Oh, why did they have to mention that? Grumbling, it's, it's, so, it's so uplifting to grumble. <laughs> I mean, when you can grumble and your friend agrees with you, isn't that fulfilling? Don't you feel understood? You're not, oh, now you're nodding your heads, yeah. Oh, but grumbling is idle talk. Hmm, I'm going to grumble about that one. Bickering over meaningless things. Definitely idle talk. Especially when other people start it. (laughs) Or when you're in a situation when you have to listen to other people bicker. Yeah, isn't that nice? Family dinners, your relatives are bickering. You ever have that? Yeah. And it's bickering over meaningless things. And you can and the people have bickered over that same topic multiple times because you've been at multiple family dinners where they've done that. Yeah. And it would be so nice to grumble and tell them that they're having idle talk and creating non-virtue because they're bickering, and wouldn't they just cut it out? And did you hear what they bickered about at the last (laughs) dinner we had? You can't believe it, these people, again. Okay, so I don't have idle talk talking about entertainment, sports, politics, crime, and so forth without a good reason. With a good reason, okay, and there's many good reasons. The only good reason I can think to talk about sports, and there's no men in the room so I'm safe. Oh, but you're a sports therapist, hmm. Okay, (laughs) what? (laughs) A sports, physical therapist. Um, Yeah, okay, I better not say that. Okay, so talking about entertainment, sports, you know, I mean, people spend hours talking about what happens to a ball. Yeah? I mean, it could be a little ball like this that bounces, or that has kind of bump things on it that old man hit with a stick. <laughs> yeah? It could be a weird-shaped ball. Yeah? Like somebody didn't know what it, how it was supposed to look. Or it could be... A white ball that's kind of smooth or an orange ball that's bigger and rough, yeah? And they talk for hours about where a ball is and who put the ball there. (laughs) And they think that that's interesting, yeah? Amazing. Okay. And people talk about movie stars and famous people. Yeah. So now I'm gonna say the only meaningful thing I can think talking about sports is Colin Copernic kneeling. Yeah, that I will talk about, you know. And that even didn't involve where the ball was. But, you know, I thought that was something quite meaningful. Mm -hmm. Okay, then the completion is saying the words out loud. It's not necessary that anyone hears or understands. Oh my goodness, what I say to the cat. It's like I'm talking to a baby. I think all of us talk to the kitties that way, don't we? Oh, little sweetheart. You want some yums? Is it din-din time? <laughs> Come here, I'll feed you some yums. Yeah, is your little dummy full? Yeah, stop biting me. <laughs> Okay, so that that is idle talk. But, but, you know, there is some purpose sometimes in this kind of talk. Yeah. Just even with a pet, they know when we talk like that, that they are loved. Yeah. So if we have a motivation to, you know, show our pets that they are (laughs) loved. Yeah, then maybe that's okay. If you're working at, in an office, you know, sometimes you need to chit chat with people, you know, about different topics. It, it, this Sometimes if we talk about idle talk, we think it, it, we always have to be having a Dharma talk with something, somebody, or talking about some meaningful thing like emptiness, you know. So, you're going to go into your workplace to talk about emptiness, and your colleague is going to say, Yeah, my wallet is empty. (laughs) Uh, So, it doesn't mean that. You know, there are times when we have to chit chat, when there are times to talk about politics, we are influenced by what goes on in the country, you know? And our religious freedom, our freedom in general, is at stake. So there's a reason to talk about these things, okay? Um, Talking about sports, I guess if you work with somebody and that's what they like to talk about, but I don't know anything. So. you know, they come in and say, I don't know, there's some guy named Brady. I don't know, does he play basketball or volleyball or golf or ba- football or baseball? Yeah. So, you know, I hear random names kind of, you know, back and forth. Yeah. When I, uh, when I read the headlines that Kobe was killed, it was like, that name sounds familiar. Did I meet him somewhere? You know, no, I didn't meet him. He's a famous basketball star. Oh, is that it? Yeah? Somebody, you know, so you hear a name. Okay, so I'll talk. Next one. Now we're moving into those were the four of speech. Now we're moving into the three of mind. And remember, the ones of speech don't have to be done verbally. They can be done physically, like writing a message, typing a message. Yeah, uh, some you know doing it in Morse code or or whatever. Okay. Now, but the four verbal ones all have to be, I mean, the four, sorry, the three mental ones all have to be done mentally. And uh, the question came up, I think, last week about how many uh, non-virtues can you do at one time? And, uh, (laughs) well, you can also reword it as how many virtues can you do at one time? And uh, the, the three mental ones, you have to do, it's you can't tell somebody else to do it. And you know, have it, you accumulate the karma yourself. But amongst the seven